The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Paid the penalty for all our sins. God the Father in His omniscience knew billions and billions of years ago every single sin that would ever be committed by every human being. Nothing surprises God. It may surprise you. It may shock you. It may shock your friends and family. But nothing you do will ever surprise or shock God. Every sin that you've ever committed was then paid for by Jesus Christ. God the Father, in His omniscience, took all of those sins and poured them out or imputed them to Jesus Christ on the cross, where for three hours He hung between heaven and earth and in the darkness, symbolizing the separation, legal separation between God the Son and God the Father. Jesus Christ paid for every one of those sins. Now, the purpose of confession is simply to recover fellowship with God. You see, what happens is that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we receive eternal life and have an eternal relationship with God the Father that can never be uh, disrupted. It can never be taken away from us. It is ours forever. We have eternal security. So, this top circle here represents our eternal relationship with God the Father. The second thing that happens in terms of our relationship is our relationship in, with God in time. When we are in fellowship with God, we are, as believers in the church age, filled with the Holy Spirit. Whenever we commit a sin, whether known or unknown, we immediately lose fellowship with God and lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're out of fellowship and under the control of our sin nature. The way to recover fellowship with God, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, is through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. It has nothing to do with feeling sorry for your sins. You don't have to feel sorry for your sins. That's not going to impress God. He knows that in 15 minutes you're probably going to do it all over again. Now, you don't think so, but He knows that you will. So, no matter how much you feel sorry for your sins, uh, it doesn't impress God because God is never impressed with our works. You may feel sorry and that's fine, but that's not what has any meaning for God. It is simply that you admit or acknowledge your sins to God as David said in the Old Testament, to thee and thee alone, O Lord, I confess my sins. And instantly, God restores us to fellowship with Him. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit and we are free to move forward in our spiritual life. Under the filling of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit then helps us to understand His Word so that we can learn the principles and the precepts of the Word of God, apply them in our lives so that we can grow and mature as believers. So with that, let's brief introduction. Let's bow our heads together for just a few moments of silent prayer where we name or admit our sins in privacy of our own soul to God the Father, recover fellowship and prepare for the teaching of His Word, and then we will begin. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we come together this morning to worship You through the most important way, and that is the study of Your Word that You have taken the time to give Your Word to us down through the centuries and to preserve it so that we could know everything that You have done for us, how Your grace provided us with salvation, and how as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, You have given us an incredible array of assets to live the Christian life and to live for You that we might glorify You in this life. And Father, now as we study Your Word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would make it clear to each one of us that we might be able to store it in our souls, that we can re recover these principles and be reminded of these principles as we go through life to apply them on a day-to-day -day basis. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John chapter 1. It's getting so bad I can't even find the Gospel of John unless I put my glasses on. John chapter 1. 
reading the first paragraph, which comprises the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, last week we began briefly and just covered the first clause of this verse, the opening of the Gospel. We saw this is one of the most profound statements in all of human literature. Throughout the history of mankind and the history of ideas, uh, great thinkers and philosophers had tried, tried to probe the depths of eternity and tried to push back to understand the ultimate realities of the universe. Men like Aristotle, Plato, Descartes, Leibniz have all tried to push back beyond to find the ultimate reality of the universe. Each one asking, well, what caused this? And what caused that? And what caused that? What was behind that? And as they kept trying to push their minds back further and further to the ultimate causes and ultimate realities of the universe, in the ancient Greek world, they came up with a phrase to describe that ultimate reality. They weren't sure what it was. Aristotle called, caused, called it the uncaused cause or the, uncaused, or the unmoved mover. Another phrase that they used was arche. In the Greek, it looks like this. A-R-C-H-E. Arche. Arche described the ultimate principles, the ultimate realities of the universe. This was also the general word that was just translated beginning. had a general sense for the man in the street, but it had a more technical sense for the great thinkers of that time. And under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John just blasts past the limits of human comprehension and takes us right to the middle of eternity past so that we can understand the ultimate reality in the universe. Unlike the other three Gospels, which begin with the virgin birth or with the baptism of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark, uh, John begins in eternity past because his Gospel is uniquely dedicated to demonstrating the deity of Jesus Christ. John wrote this so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So this gospel is written with one purpose in mind, to make sure that people understand how you get to heaven. That you don't get to heaven on the basis of your own works. You don't get to heaven because you've just got such a wonderful personality. You don't get to heaven because you do so many nice and wonderful things for people. You don't get to heaven because you impress God by getting up early on Sunday morning and coming to church. God isn't impressed by any of these things. You get to heaven simply by Faith alone in Christ alone. And that's it. We begin with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John goes back to these first principles when he uses the phrase, In Arche. Now, there are several different beginnings in the Scripture. The first beginning, as far as we can tell, the first creation, was the creation of the angels. Now, we know that the angels were first in order of creation, because in Job 38.4, we read, as God is the speaker here, and he's speaking to Job, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And this is the ultimate creation of the heavens and the earth that God is referring to in Job 38.4. He goes on, he says, Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy... Now, in the Old Testament, the phrase sons of God is a technical term for the angels. And at this point, we see that there has been no division among the angels. All of the angels are together and united, singing together. There has been no satanic rebellion. Lucifer has not asserted his arrogance and tried to become like God and led a third of the angels in rebellion against God. So we see all of the angels together witnessing God's creation of heaven and earth, which takes place in Genesis 1.1. So first the angels are created, then the universe. Genesis 1.1, we have in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now in Hebrew, there's no word for universe. So they use the term the heavens and the earth to 
incorporate everything in the creation. And that's their description of the universe. So first God creates the angels. Then He created the universe. Third, He creates, He recreates the earth in the six days of creation in Genesis chapter, chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then the next verse says literally in the Hebrew, but the earth became without form and void. And that phrase, form and void, tohu vabohu in the Hebrew, refers to some kind of divine judgment. Something took place between Genesis 1-1, the creation of the heavens and the earth, and Genesis 1-2, when you see the earth in darkness, the, the earth was tohu vabohu, without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the earth. And in that, we see that God has judged the universe because of the angelic rebellion the rebellion led by Lucifer against God. And then God recreates the earth in six days in Genesis chapter 1. And then the crowning point of His creation on the sixth day is the creation of man. So these are the four different beginnings in the Scripture. But the beginning referred to here in Genesis 1.1 harkens back to the very first phrase, in, I mean in John 1.1, harkens back to the first phrase in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Now this is pictured for us, or I can picture it for us, as a line here representing time and ending right here. When God first created the universe, it started the space-time continuum. Space and time are related to one another. You can't have space without time. You can't have time without space. And so at the very beginning of the space-time principle, this is the archaic. This is the beginning. What John is saying is at the beginning you have to go to your verb. The verb here is the Greek word. It's the imperfect tense of a me, which is the word to be. And it means was, or here, best translation, was existing. And so what John does through this verb is to punch right through this wall of the beginning of time and go into eternity past and basically what he is saying is in the beginning when everything began, the Word was already continually in existence. The Word was already continually in existence. The imperfect tense of the verb is a progressive imperfect of description which denotes continual action in past time. It vividly represents the action as going on and on without end indefinitely in past time, with no reference to its completion or its present state. So, in the beginning, at the time of the beginning, at this point, when everything began, the Word, the Logos, in the Greek, the Logos was already existing. The Logos was continually existing without end. And this is one of the strongest ways that John could use language to express the eternity of Jesus Christ. You know, when it comes to describing God and describing Jesus Christ and describing eternity, it just takes everything we can in language to try to describe these things because of the limitations of language. That does not mean that our language is false. It's just not adequate. We can't push it all. So he is exhausting the limits of Greek language here in a very simple way to express the eternity of Jesus Christ. So the verb here is what's important. The verb here is what throws all the action all the way into eternity past. And John says that as far back as you can go in your thinking, at that very point, what was already in existence and what had been in existence forever and ever and ever was the logos. Now, logos is a very interesting word. In the Greek, it looks like this. L-O-G-O. S. And if you look up in the Liddell Scott Greek-English lexicon, which is the standard classical lexicon for Greek, you find three pages of meanings listed. Let me give you just a hint of what this word entails. Account, reckoning, measure, esteem, consideration, value, relation, correspondence, proportion, ratio, explanation, plea, pretext, ground, reason, a statement of a theory, a logical argument, 
a proposition. Now we're getting to some real core ideas here that are present in this word. A logical argument, a proposition, a rule, a principle, a formula. Uh, the inward debate of the soul. Thus it refers to thought that is then expressed outwardly as a word. So there's another Greek word for word called rhema. Rhema refers to the spoken word. Logos goes beyond the simple spoken word to the thought that underlies the spoken word. Logos means thinking, therefore, reasoning, reflection, deliberation, mental conception. It has the idea of scientific reasoning and right process of thought. Logic. That's where we get our word logic, from logos. It's a direct derivative. Logic. Abstract reasoning. Discursive reasoning. Reason as a faculty of the soul. The reason that pervades the universe. Creative reason. Speech. Narration. And verbal expression or utterance which relates to revelation. So logos is a title that has a vast array of meanings. It's a title for the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the expression or revelation of God the Father. If you look down in John chapter 1 to verse 18, there's a very important verse. It says, No man has seen God at any time. And this is referring to God the Father. Now, if no man, this is a principle, if no man has seen God at any time, who did they see in the Old Testament? They saw the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Who was it who walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and taught them about the realities of things? It was the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. That is the role of the second person of the Trinity to reveal God. God the Father is the architect of the plan. God the Son is the revealer of the plan. God the Holy Spirit is the one who works to put the plan into operation in some respects. There are different ways to look at them. As you can say that God the Father is the architect. God the Son is the uh, building superintendent when you talk about creation because it says that for by Him all things were created in Colossians 1.17. Jesus Christ is the one who did the actual creating. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who oversaw. In Genesis 1-2, we see the Holy Spirit hovering. And the image there used in the Hebrew word is that of a bird hovering over its young to protect them, warming them. So you see the Holy Spirit's involvement. The, all three members of the Trinity are involved in the creative process. And it is the role of the second person of the Trinity in, in the plan of God to reveal God to man. Verse 18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's another technical title for Jesus Christ. Remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Monogenes, it means unique, really. One of a kind. Mono, one, genes, where we get our word like generation or genus, a kind. One of a kind. The only begotten, the unique God, because He is the one who was incarnate. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. This is the role of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, also called the Logos. In the beginning, the Logos continually existed. Now, one of the things that you have in Greek is two different words for being. And we need to look at them because John goes back and forth in the way he uses them in these, these opening verses. The first is a me. This is the word we've already seen. A me means to be. It is your basic verb of existence. To exist. To be. To exist. In the present tense or in the imperfect tense, which has to do with continual action, it would have to do with continual existence. When Jesus said to the Pharisees before, Abraham was, I am. They understood that as a technical title. He said, ego emi. I am. This is a technical reference to God the Father. When God revealed His name to Moses as Yahweh or Jehovah, the, that comes from the basic Hebrew word for uh, Hayah, to be. And so, Ami is your basic existential verb. The second is Genemai. E-I-M-I for Ami, and Genemai is G-I-N-O-M-A-I. And that is to cause to be or to bring into existence. And you see this in a very important passage in John chapter 8. So turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 58. 
Keep your place in John 1. Just turn over a few pages to John 8.58 and you see this in a, in a powerful passage. Jesus is being confronted by the um, uh, Pharisees and He tells them that, um, that his, in terms of prophecy that Abraham had looked forward to seeing His day. That Jesus Christ is claiming, Jesus is claiming at that point to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and that Abraham had looked forward to that. And, and the response of the Jews in verse 57 is, the Jews therefore said to Him, you're not 50 years old. And you have seen Abraham. This is preposterous. You're not very old at all. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. Notice how sophisticated his argument is. He said, Before Abraham was born, and the Greek word there is genomai, to come into existence. Past tense. Before Abraham came into existence, I am a me. Present tense. I am continually am in existence. And because he used this word and this phrase, he was claiming for himself deity. And this is demonstrated in the next verse by their reaction. They knew what he was saying. It was sophisticated. It was based on just a turn of the grammar. But they knew immediately that Jesus was claiming to be God. Therefore, verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. They were going to stone him right there for blasphemy. They knew he was claiming to be God. But Jesus hid himself avoided them, and got out of the temple. Back to John 1.1. In the beginning was continual existence in eternity past was the logos, the reason. Ultimate reality in the universe is an emotion, folks. Today we live in an age that promotes emotion at the expense of reason. And what the Bible says, if you want to get in touch with the ultimate reality of the universe, it's related to reason, logos, logic, rationality. Christianity is not anti-rational. It's not irrational. It's not some sort of subjective leap into emotional experience or feelings. It's based upon cold, hard facts. That's the point of this whole Gospel. John said these signs. He said there are many other signs that Jesus did to prove His deity, but these, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's like a lawyer. He's building his case. He's marshalling the evidence from the life and the works of Jesus Christ to show that He was who He claimed to be. You know, when you talk to a lot of people and you say, who do you think Jesus was? You'll get a a variety of answers, but they can basically be categorized into about three different categories. One is, somebody will say, well, Jesus was really a good man. He was a good man. He did a lot of good things for people. He healed the sick. He, 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 he was concerned about the poor. He, uh, he did a number of things for people. He was just a good man. Other people will say that, well, Jesus was a, a great religious innovator. Had a lot of new ideas. He was uh, challenging the old traditions of the Pharisees and the Jews. He was just this religious innovator. And he was, and it's just a subcategory of a good man, but they want to emphasize the religious aspect. And the third option is that Jesus was who He claimed to be, the second person of the Trinity, the God of the universe. Now, how can you make this dis- distinction? What, what, can you think, what do you think about these things? Well, first of all, if Jesus was a good man, then we need to redefine what we mean by a good man. Because Jesus made some incredible, incredible claims. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He claimed to be God many, many times. He said that He and... Um, uh, that He was before Abraham was, I am. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through Me. Three claims He makes there. I am the only way to God. I am the truth. Absolute truth. Capital T. I am the life. Life exists in Me. This is the claim that John will get to in verse 4. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by Me. He claims exclusivity. You can't get there any other way. You can't get there through Hinduism. You can't get there through Buddhism. You can't get there through meditation. You can't get there through Islam. You can't get there by by being good enough. You can only get there through Me. Now, if Jesus is telling the truth, then He's the only way to heaven. 
If Jesus isn't telling the truth, then He is a liar. He is a deceiver. And He has deceived millions and millions of people down through the generations. He established a, a religious system based on those claims that uh, uh, in, in some of its worst manifestations has caused the death of hundreds of thousands of people. Many people uh, also have martyred and given their lives uh, on the basis of those claims. If Jesus is a good man, how could He make claims that were false? He couldn't. So you cannot say and give language any meaning that Jesus was a good man if He made the claims that He made. He was either telling the truth or He's a liar. And He's not a religious innovator for Jesus hated religion. Religion, by definition, is man trying to gain approval with God on the basis of man's own efforts. Religion is man saying, God, I'm going to do good, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to give money, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, but that's going to impress you. I'm going to give all these rules... And if I live up to these rules and somehow that impresses you and you're going to give me a relationship with you. That's what religion is. But Christianity talks about a relationship. That all you have to do is believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. That's it. Jesus did all the work. Jesus did everything. All you do is accept it by faith. Uh, Ephesians 2.89 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. The issue, Titus 3.5 says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Why is it not by works of righteousness which we have done? Because Isaiah tells us that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Garbage in the sight of God. That's what God says. The best that you can do is so far below my standard that it's just garbage. So since you can't do anything to save yourself, I must do everything for you. So I will send my Son who will become a man, a perfect man, and He will die on the cross for your sins. So John begins his Gospel to demonstrate the deity of the second person of the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now this is important. In the Greek it says the preposition is pros plus the accusative which means face to face with God. But we're going to have to take time to look at the grammar. The grammar in these first four verses is so important and so packed with important implications. Pros, P-R-O-S, ton, this is your definite article, T-O-N, theon. T-H-E-O-N. Now, a definite article in English is the word the. It adds specificity. I can talk about hand me a pen. Anybody could hand me any different pen. It's just generic. Any pen. The definite article would be is the word the. Hand me the pen. That indicates a specific pen. In English, you have either a definite article the or you have an indefinite article a or an which could be anything in a class or category. That is not how the definite article in Greek functions. Now, this is important. I know some of you are saying, well, this might be getting a little too technical, a little over my head, uh, but this is important. And you'll see why it's important because uh, of the implications of this. When John writes this phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was pros ton theon, he is indicating that the definite article indicates the identity of God. He was face-to-face with God. So immediately we see two different persons. The article emphasizes a specific person. So what we see here is two people, the Lagos and Theos. The Lagos is face-to-face with Theos. So Theos here refers to God the Father. In the beginning was the Lagos, and the Lagos was face-to-face with God the Father. Now, when the article is absent, then identity or individual person is not the prominent idea. It can be indefinite, a pen or a God, but it can also emphasize quality, the quality of a thing, the essence of a thing. And that's how the Greeks often did it, to bring emphasis to a particular word and its essence as opposed to its individual identity. They dropped out the article. And that's exactly what happens in the next phrase. 
The Word was with God the Father, face to face with God the Father. And then we have a phrase, and the Word was God. And it's a reverse word order in the Greek. You start off with theos, and then you have your verb, ain, and then you have ha, lagos. Now, Greek is really an interesting language. It's it's real simple once you get the, the hang of it. But in English, word order is everything because we don't have an inflected language. In Greek, your, your, your subject is in the nominative, nominative case. Your direct object is in the accusative case. The indirect object is in the uh, dative case. Your possessive nouns are indicated by uh, your genitive case. So it really doesn't matter what order you put the words in because the case of the nouns tells you everything. So what happens in Greek often is they really jumble everything up for emphasis. And that's not how you would translate. Now, if you were to look at this and just translate it word for word into English, you, would, you might say God or, the, or, or a God was the Word. Well, what happens is, in the way John wrote this, is he threw theos at the beginning for emphasis. Because that's, that's the word he wants you to pay attention to. The word that comes before the verb. Then you have your verb here, and then you have H-O-Ha-Lagos. Okay? God was the Word. Now, the definite article is this Ha right there. That tells you something. In any construction like this, which is called the predicate nominative construction, the verb is the predicate. I know this is really stretching some of you all the way back years and years ago when you were in school. In a Greek construction, the noun, in predicate nominative construction, the noun with the definite articles, the subject. Also because it's in the nominative case. So that tells you that the subject of the verb is the logos, the word. Then your verb was, the word was, and then your predicate nominative, God. That's how you translate that. So it's correctly translated in, in most of your Bibles. The Word was God. But why did he throw Theos up to the beginning for emphasis? He also did something else. He left out the definite article. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are really a modern incarnation of a very ancient heresy called Arianism, Arius was about a 4th century presbyter from Alexandria. Arius went around teaching that if you go back to eternity past, somewhere back here, there was a time when the Logos began, when the Word began. So Jesus is... He's he's a God, but He's not eternal. He denied the eternality of God. And Arius wrote music. And so there were little ditties that they were singing all over the Roman Empire. There was a time when Christ was not. And this heresy spread and caused a tremendous disruption in the church. And his bishop in Alexandria was a man named Athanasius. And Athanasius, Athanasius was brilliant. Athanasius knew that if Jesus wasn't eternal, then He wasn't fully eternal. God. For Jesus to do what Jesus claimed to do, to be the efficacious sacrifice for every human being, then Jesus had to be fully God. So Athanasius went into battle against Arius. And they ended up finally at a little place up on the sea coast in, um, in Turkey called Nicaea. They came up with the Nicene Creed. You've heard that before, whatever your background is probably. And in the Nicene Creed, they articulated that Jesus Christ was fully God, full God of full God. In other words, they affirmed the deity of Christ. Now, the interesting thing about the Nicene Council is that only a... You had about a hundred and some odd different delegates there. About five of them understood the issue on Athanasius' side. And about five understood Arius and went with him. The rest of them, this is true in every church disagreement or council, the rest of the people don't have a clue as to what the issues are. They don't understand the implications. They're not great thinkers. They're just sitting around being swayed by personality and emotion. But Athanasius won the day and you had the Nicene Creed, but he didn't win it for long. And about five years later, the emperor of the Roman Empire, Constantine, died. And his son came up, and his son liked Arius, because Arius had, he had real charisma, 
had a great personality. And so Constantine's son went with Arius and Athanasius is sent into exile. And this happens four times Athanasius goes into exile before the church finally articulates the full deity of Christ um, correctly and affirms it by the end of the century. And, uh, uh, and the Jehovah's Witnesses have just picked up this ancient, ancient heresy and they come along and they want to translate this. They'll come and they'll knock on your door. They'll open the door and they'll want to talk to you about prophecy or this or that or the other thing. And they'll pull out their Bible. And they'll say, well, let's look at it. And they'll look at John 1.1 1, 1, and it says, In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was a God. A God. Okay? Little g. Now, what that, would, what that means is that Jesus is a creature. Not eternal God. So if He's not eternal God, then He can't really die on the cross for the sins of all humanity and pay the price for the sins of all humanity. So therefore, what are you left with? If Jesus didn't pay the price for you, then you have to do it yourself. You have to work your way to salvation. And that's why, and I had somebody tell me this years ago, that's why whenever they needed any handiwork done around their house, they always hired a Jehovah's Witness. (laughs) Now, why did they do that? Because they're trying to work their way to heaven. They're going to be incredibly honest. They're going to do the best job in the world. They're going to be, inc- they're, they're going to be there at 6.30 in the morning and wake you up. And they're going to stay till 5.30 or 6 at night. And they're going to do a tremendous job. You know, as Christians, we ought to have that kind of testimony. But the, um, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are working their way to heaven. Why? Because they don't have anybody who paid the penalty for them. There's no grace. It's all works. Now, the interesting thing is, and you can kind of jot these things down in your notes, is that in the New Testament, there are 282 occurrences of the noun theos, T-H-E-O-S, theos, without a definite article. 282 times in the New Testament. In only 16 of those 282 occurrences do the Jehovah's Witnesses translate it as a God or with a little g in their New World Translation. Sixteen out of 282 times are they consistent with their principle. I mean, this is what they try to hang everything on when they come and knock on your door is that there's no definite article right there. Sixteen out of 282 times means only 6% of the time are they consistent with their big principle. That means 94% of the time they're inconsistent with that principle. Furthermore, Theos occurs eight times in the first chapter of John. It occurs in verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 18. Eight times you have the word Theos. Only two times does it lack the article, which is called anarthrus. No article, anarthrus. Only two times out of eight is it anarthrus. And yet, in the New World Translation that the Jehovah's Witness will bring to your door and say, see, it's a God. That's what it says. He's not God. He's just a God. In six of those eight times, or 75% of the time in John 1, they translate Theos without the article as a capital G God. They can't make it work. It's not consistent. So therefore, you have something to rely on now the next time you hear that knock on your door. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, what happens in Greek, when you have that word without the article, what the author is emphasizing is the essence, the quality of that noun. And so when John says, Theos hain halagos, what he is saying is that the word is identical in essence to God. He is claiming absolute identity that Jesus Christ is fully God. He is not a God. He is not a subsidiary. He's not a creature. He is not some, some, uh, uh, some other creature or some other type of God. He is identical with God the Father in all of His essence. Crank through here. What are we talking about? God is sovereign which means He is the ruler of all creation. He is perfect righteousness, plus R. He, has, he is perfection itself, absolute perfection. That means God sets the standard and He can have fellowship with nothing that does not match His perfect standard. He is absolute justice. 
That means that God is totally fair in all that He does. Remember, we'll get over to the three O's here, omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence. And in God's omniscience, He knows all the knowable. There's nothing that God doesn't know. Nothing will ever happen that will ever surprise God. So God knows all the facts in every case, all the motivations, everything. There's no fact that will ever be uncovered that would render a judicial verdict of God wrong. God knows it all. So every decision that comes from the Supreme Court of Heaven is absolutely fair and correct. God is sovereign, He's righteous, He's just, and then God is perfect love. I like the word virtue love. Most people don't understand love. We talk about love and we confuse it with, with, the, um, uh, with sentimentality and emotion and feelings. And see, for love, true love to be love, it has to be based on honor and integrity and virtue. It can't be an emotion because emotions are fleeting. It has to be based on the mind, on the mentality, on the character of the soul. And what we see in God, because He has perfect righteousness and therefore perfect virtue and integrity, that God's love is perfect. And because God is immutable or never changing, God's love never changes. And because God knows everything you and I will ever do in our life, He knows us better than we will ever know ourselves, God's love for us is never going to change because of anything that you or I do. So God's love is perfect and perfectly stable, and then God is eternal. He is eternal life. And so we see here in this passage that Jesus is eternal, so He has all of the attributes of deity. Then God is omniscient, meaning God knows all the knowable. He knows everything. God never learns anything. He never increases in knowledge. He's never surprised by anything. God knows all the knowable. He knows everything that could happen. He knows all the variables. And any given day, you could get up and make five different decisions to go in five different directions. God knows exactly what would happen if you followed each of those five courses. Make it a million courses, a million options. God knows everything. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He can do everything He wills to do. And God is omnipresent. He is present at every moment to every part of His creation. God is also I for immutable. He cannot change. Mutation means to change. Immutable means never changing. With God, there is no shadow or variation of turning. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is immutable and God is V for veracity. He is absolute truth. He cannot lie. He cannot deceive. God is absolute truth. Jesus Christ, here's the essence box. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all have the same identical essence. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. That God is one in essence and three in distinct person. Here's an ancient diagram of the Trinity. You have God. He is, exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. God is the Father. God is the Spirit. And God is the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. And the Spirit... I don't even know if you can see all that. Yeah, it came through. And the Spirit is not the Son. They are distinct in person. They are one in essence. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. They are co-equal, co-eternal, and identical in essence or co-substantial. Those are the technical theological words. The doctrine of the Trinity. Now, John goes on and he says, He, that is the Logos, or the same one, was in the beginning with God. So that means that God the Son was intimately involved at the beginning with Father uh, is the architect of the plan, but God the Son is the construction engineer. He's the one who does the actual creating work. And it is God the Holy Spirit who is the overseer. The function of Jesus Christ in creation was to do the actual creating. All things, everything. There's not one gene, one microbe, one atom that did not come into being apart from Him. In fact, this has great implications and tremendous security for us because Colossians 1.16 says that not only did all things come into being by Him, but through Him all things continue to exist. That means that Jesus Christ controls everything. Man can do nothing to destroy the universe or planet Earth or the environment because ultimately Jesus Christ is in control. Jesus Christ controls the environment. Jesus Christ controls history. Now, there, that does not mean that we should be irresponsible in our use of the environment. But that does not mean that as believers, and we'll develop this later, that believers, that we should yield to the pantheistic concepts of the environmentalist movement. 
as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, Bible believers, we have a totally different basis for asserting man's use, responsible use of the environment. In pantheism, man is part of nature, and so you can't use nature. That's why your pantheistic American Indian tribes never advance. They're living within nature. They never use nature. No technology ever develops. But Jesus Christ controls the environment. Jesus Christ controls history. In Him, verse 4, was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, in God, part of God's attributes is that God is eternal life. Man is not. And God wants to share His eternal life with man. He wants to give that to every single human being. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. God loves the world. This brings into play another attribute of God. His divine love. But you can't separate the attributes of God except for academic discussion purposes. They all work together. They all correlate together. They all interrelate. So we must realize that God is also perfect righteousness and perfect justice. What the righteousness of God, the standard of God, rejects, then the justice of God must also condemn. What the righteousness of God approves, then the justice of God accepts. But when the righteousness of God looks on sinful man and says, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, God, God's righteousness rejects man, so His justice condemns man. But the love of God provides a solution, the redemption solution through Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. At the cross, God the Father poured out on Jesus Christ all the sins that were ever committed by every human being on planet Earth. No matter how bad they are, no matter who that person is, no matter how heinous those sins are, every single sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. God the Father, in His perfect righteousness, looked down on the cross and He was satisfied with the payment. God's righteousness approved, so God's justice could then bless. Because of this, we call this concept that God the Father's righteousness and justice is satisfied, we call this propitiation. This is the technical word used in Scripture. God the Father's justice and righteousness are propitiated. He's satisfied. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, man can now have an entry into heaven. Scriptures teach that man was originally created without sin. But Adam chose to sin and he lost perfection and he became minus R. And there was a barrier that was erected between God and man. That barrier is comprised of all the different facets of sin and its effect on the human race. When God the Father looked on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and was satisfied and was propitiated, then the love of God was then free to flow to man. At the cross, the sin problem was taken care of so that sin is no longer the issue between God and man. The issue is now the cross of Jesus Christ. The issue is, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? When Paul and Silas were cast into jail, in the Philippian jail, and the Philippian jailer heard them singing hymns while they were in jail, he came to them and said, what must I do to be saved? Their answer was simple. Go to church. No, no, wait a minute. Give a lot of money. Be good. Go to church and participate in all the ritual. And what he said. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's it. That's all you do. Because it's not based on what we do. Faith is non-meritorious. We saw that last week. Everybody can do it. Everybody believes all kinds of things. It's not believing that saves. It's the object of faith. And the object of faith is the cross of Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 18, it says, He who believes in Him is not judged. Why? Because Christ has been judged for us. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because the work of Christ was not applied to us. He who does not believe has, not been, has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It doesn't say he has been judged already because he, he didn't go to church. Then say he has been judged already because he didn't do good or obey the Ten Commandments. Said he has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, 
Recently, I was thinking about the Scriptures. You know how many people were heinous criminals and murderers who wrote the Word of God? Think about it. Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And Moses killed an Egyptian, murdered, and he had to flee for his life away from Egyptian justice. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Uh, Saul, before he was saved, was a persecutor of Christians and uh, caused many to be unjustly executed and put to death. And he wrote most of the New Testament. So a number of the writers of Scripture were, were murderers. They were adulterers. They committed all kinds of sin. You see, sin is not the issue because man can't pay for his own sin. That's what Athanasius understood. God has to do it. If Jesus Christ is not fully God, there is no salvation. Because Jesus Christ is fully God, He could pay the price. His death on the cross would have infinite value and could be applied to every single human being. So the Scripture says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's the claim of Christianity. That's what makes Christianity different from all the other world religions. All the religions in the world and religious systems try to impress God with something they give up, something they do. Scripture says you can't impress God. Jesus paid the price. Jesus did it all. All you have to do is accept that. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to be called the sons of God. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word that it is so clear and so precise in describing Your solution to our sin. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we now have the opportunity that there is anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal life, who has no idea what would happen if they were to die tomorrow, that right now they can solve that, that situation. All they have to do is forming words and thought alone is just say to you, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died for me. That's all it takes. Once you're saved, you're always saved because at the point of salvation, you give us 40 different things including eternal security. We become a child of you. We are born again, regenerated, made a new person in Christ. All these things are not experiential. We may or may not feel anything. But what we do know is from that moment on, we have eternal life. And we can never lose it. Father, we thank You for Your love for us, for the way it provided this remarkable, incredible solution that depends not at all on us. We don't do anything for it. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done. It's not by any works. It's not based on our personality. It's not based on our wealth. It's not based on our industry. It's not based on our nationality. It's not based on our race. It's not based on anything other than our choice. Do we believe in Jesus Christ? Faith alone in Christ alone. How simple, yet so profound. Father, we thank You for this and pray that as we go throughout this week that You would remind us of the principles that we have learned today, that they would be evident in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.